0: Chapter two of East by West, volume two by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two A Personal Episode in History Sitting one day in the European drawing-room of Mr. Inouye's counting-house, which, after all, has its conveniences in the matter of chairs, the foreign minister told me the story of his life which is also in a great measure the story of the life of the new empire of japan in eighteen sixty four japan was in those throes which surely presaged a new birth of one kind or other most probably of revolution and rapine at tokyo the tycoon reigned but scarcely governed at kyoto the mikado reigned but in no sense governed The ancient and curiously solemn farce of dual majesty still prevailed. The mikado's person and authority were sacred, too sacred for contact with mundane affairs. He lived in his palace, surrounded by all the attributes of imperial majesty. His name was revered throughout all the provinces. In theory, his power was unlimited. He could do almost anything but direct the destinies of the nation of which he was the titular head. He could create a new deity who would presently have his shrines, his priesthood, and his throng of worshippers, but he could not move a regiment of soldiers. The tycoons, who had commenced to be Cromwells, whilst not destroying the kingship, had long usurped imperial state, and in recent relations of foreign powers, had used the title of majesty. So dark were the internal affairs of Japan to the foreigner, that the shadowy emperor interned at Kyoto was possibly, after some vague efforts to comprehend his position, absolutely ignored, and foreign treaties were contracted with His Majesty the Tycoon it was the existence of these treaties and the prospect of further and closer intercourse with the scorned and hated foreigner that accounted for the hot blood now seething in japan and threatening to find outlet somewhere against the foreigner if possible if not against the usurper who had so far forgotten his duty to the empire as to traffic with foreigners In 1854, a treaty had been made with the United States, very narrow in its scope, but illimitable in its consequences. It had been signed at the instance or on the insistence of Commodore Perry, and bound the Japanese government to afford succour and protection to seamen and vessels of the United States if the japanese government failed therein or could in any plausible manner be held to have failed commodore perry or someone like him at the head of a fleet of ironclads would appear off nagasaki bombard the town and perhaps land troops the tycoon in entering into a pledge with a foreign power had given that power the right to enforce its fulfilment in eighteen fifty eight great britain had wrung another treaty out of the tycoon one much wider in its scope than that conceded to the united states the foreigner had already obtained a foothold on the sacred shores of the empire he lived at yokohama built houses carried on trade and if any 2 sordid man were in an excess of patriotism to chop off his head Instead of being protected and advanced in favour, he was tried for murder. The foreigners were asking for more open ports, fresh treaties were talked of, and nothing in the previous conduct of the tycoon justified the hope that they would not be granted. The old nobles of Japan saw this degradation and threatened destruction of their country with troubled breasts and growing anger they were the real rulers of japan though for convenience sake and with the object of preventing one or other of their fellows from usurping the emptied throne they were content to do homage to the tycoon but when he thus proved faithless to all traditions of the country some of them resolved to assert the personal independence which had always existed in fact foremost amongst these hot-headed chieftains was the prince of chiu he swore a great oath that let the tycoon do what he pleased and make such treaties as he thought fit in tokyo the province of chosu should be held free from the contaminating touch of the foreigners if the foreigners entered his territory they should incontinently be slain if foreign ships appeared off his coasts they should be fired upon to which end he built and armed forts Amongst his retinue were two young men of twenty-two or twenty-three years of age, one named Ito and the other Inouye. They were of the samurai class, and their sagacity and courage had, even at this early age, raised them high in the councils of their prince. They were daring enough to offer him advice, and when he talked of keeping the foreigners off with his puny forts, they gloomily shook their heads they had seen british ships at anchor in Yedor bay and had heard the roar of their guns if they said to the hot-headed chieftain you should succeed in driving off an english vessel by the fire from your forts what then within a week or two others of greater strength would steam up and in an hour you would not have a stone standing on another the only thing to do is to beat england on her own ground we must learn to sail ships and fight them and with a fleet of our own we shall be able to keep our coast inviolate the prince listened to reason from these young but trusted counsellors and a notable scheme was hatched these two young men with three others of the same age and standing were to go to england to spy out the land master the great secret of naval supremacy bring it back to japan straightway create a fleet and then let england the united states and france look out the first difficulty in realization of this plan barred the start of the young patriots it was at this time a capital offense for any japanese to attempt to leave the country without the permission of the tycoon the tycoon however was not a man to be trusted he was gradually selling his birthright for successive messes of pottage and patriotic chosu would have nothing to do with him japan should be saved in spite of him in this dilemma young inouye came forward with his plan he had often been down to yokohama watching with glowing eyes the evidences of the strength activity and he was bound to admit the intelligence of the detested foreigner he had even scraped a personal acquaintance with some of them amongst others a mr Gowen, then consul at yokohama what particular story he told this gentleman in order to induce him to assist in his escape i do not know it is pretty certain that he did not tell him that he and his comrades were going over to england with the expressed purpose of taking preliminary steps for humbling the pride and power of great britain and blowing its navies out of the sea however that be he induced the consul to ship them in the dead of the night in the guise of common sailors to shanghai where they could take a passage for england The prince of chiu had raised a thousand pounds to meet the expenses of their expedition, a sum placed to their credit with the house of Jardine Matheson and Co., one of the pioneers of British trade in Japan. Everything went well as far as Shanghai, but here a hitch occurred. Three of the party duly sailed as passengers and reached England after a more or less pleasant voyage ito and inouye met with quite another fate being questioned as to their desires and intentions inouye expended the greater part of his store of english in declaring that he wanted to learn navigation his heart was full and his mind engrossed by the object of his mission knowledge of navigation was the secret of england's greatness and the foundation of the power which enabled her to be overbearing and insolent in japan he and his dear friend ito would go and study navigation in its chief school they would come back and spread it through then should the star of the british empire on the seas pale and who knows but what it would be found worth while that great britain should be annexed And should be even as yezo or one of the countless islands that stud the inland sea accordingly when asked what they wanted to do inouyeh answered navigation and that being all the answer to be got out of him he and his comrade were shipped as common sailors on board the good ship pegasus bound for the port of london they did not discover this till shanghai had become a dim streak on the horizon and they found themselves buffeted about ordered in an unknown tongue to do impossible things how they got through the voyage it is difficult to understand though mr Inouye, looking back at the episode from the eminence of the foreign office talks of it pleasantly and cheerily the sailors called him johnny and the boatswain had a keen eye to a sum of fifty dollars they happened to have with them when they went on board strange games of cards were played in the forecastle in which they were invited to join if they refused they were thrashed if they played they lost their money after a brief period of hesitation during which their heads began to swell and their backs ached they decided to lose their money this once settled they led quite a pleasant life the sailors took pains to teach them their business and with the natural aptitude of the Japanese, they speedily became able seamen. "'I never see a sailing ship now,' the Foreign Minister said as he told me the story, "'but I find myself scanning the rigging and running off the names of the ropes and spars, as I used to do on the Pegasus.' When they arrived at the Port of London, the sailors left the ship and hurried off to home or other haunts. But the two Japanese runaways had nowhere to go. They were dazed with the sight and sounds of mighty London, with its moving crowds, its interminable streets, and its forest of ships. They had entered it by its most imposing avenue, and, slowly sailing up the river, had watched with ever-widening astonishment and deepening trouble the signs of wealth and power this was the country they presently meant to defy and to humble in the future history of england the day when they sailed up the thames disguised in blue sailor shirts and canvas trousers the worse for wear and tar would be marked by a black letter as it was london took distressingly small notice of them the procession of ships sailed up and down the docks for miles and miles were full of ships there was a town on either side of the river that seemed to have no end they were in the centre of millions of people whose ultimate fate they held in their hands but who for the present with provoking indifference took no more notice of them than if they had been two gnats that strayed into dock from plumstead marshes moreover They were beginning to feel very hungry. With the end of the voyage, rations, such as they were, had stopped. The galley fire was cold, the cook had disappeared, and there was not even a bit of mouldy biscuit to be had. They stayed on board partly because they had nowhere to go, and partly because they expected that their arrival would be duly notified, and that someone would come down and lead them to a place where they were to stay. Nobody coming and hunger gnawing at them, Inouye volunteered to go ashore and buy some food. They had three dollars left, which they had secreted beyond the ken of the rapacious boatswain. Not knowing the value of such coin in England, it was deemed desirable that the emissary should take with him all the money. He accordingly pocketed the three dollars and went forth in search of something to eat. He would surely come upon a place where rice was sold ready boiled, or little bowls of soup were dispensed, or, peradventure, a little fish with trimmings of seaweed might be purchased. Wandering about, with his weather eye open for such contingencies, young Inouye at length came to a baker's shop. Bread does not form part of Japanese daily food, but he had learned to eat biscuit on board the Pegasus, and this at least would be softer. Besides, the negotiations for the purchase of a loaf of bread would not be impeded by his ignorance of the language. He need not speak a word. He had only to enter the shop, take up a loaf, put down the money, and the transaction was closed. He took up a loaf when it occurred to him that he did not know how much to pay for it. He had never bought a quartern loaf before, and could not even guess at its price it might be one dollar or less it might be two dollars or even three he did not like to offer too little of course if he gave too much the man would give him the change so he put down the three dollars i am sorry and ashamed to say that the baker after looking at him and clinking the coins to test the goodness of the silver swept them all into the till and Inouye, with a sinking heart, left the shop. He had got a loaf of bread, but in the heart of this big and pitiless city he and his comrade were penniless. A new trouble beset him when he left the shop. He had taken the bearings of the ship as carefully as he could, but he had not walked far before he discovered that he had lost his way. For hours he walked about faint with hunger fatigue and fear ito was hungry too and till he came to him he would not break bread at last when it was growing dusk he happened to turn into the dock and found ito almost in a state of desperation on his account the two sat down in the empty forecastle and ate their bread with a mighty content the next day a messenger from jardine matheson and Coes rescued them lodgings were provided for them in gower street and they had plenty of money at their command this they used in prosecuting those inquiries which were the object of their expedition they were keen-eyed young men and were not long in discovering how ludicrously slight was the foundation on which they had built their lofty hopes the invincible power of England, which had dawned upon them during their voyage up the Thames, grew with every day's residence in the country. At the end of three months news came from Japan which greatly added to their trouble. The prince of Chosiu, perhaps incited by the knowledge that he had five secret emissaries in the enemy's camp, who would presently possess themselves of the talisman of England's power, had kicked over the traces. He had closed the Straits of Shimonoseki against British ships and had threatened to fire upon any that came within range of his guns. The tycoon had solemnly rebuked him, and he had defied the tycoon. Inuye and Ito knew only too surely what would be the end of this. Less than six months ago they had left their prince as deeply imbued as he was with the conviction of the irresistible power of a Japanese clan if it could only meet on equal terms with the forces of Great Britain. They were now hundreds of years in advance of their master in respect of knowledge. Their first and immediate duty was to go back to Japan and warn their prince of the hopelessness of the struggle upon which he had embarked like saul of tarsus they had set forth on their journey full of anger hatred and contempt of these new men who disturbed the peace and order of the old regime they would go back like paul humble and convinced of the power they had despised and would hereafter become the foremost apostles of the western civilization to whose repulse from their shores they had devoted their young lives. They called upon Messrs. Jardine Matheson and Co. and explained the peremptory need of their return. But the members of the eminent and practical firm only shook their heads. These young Japanese had been consigned to their care with other goods from Japan. They were labelled students, and Messrs. Jardine Matheson and Co. had put them in the way of study. Till fresh orders were received, they could not reship them for any port. "'This was a serious rebuff. "'But the two young Japanese had grown accustomed to rebuffs, "'and had already formed a habit of disregarding them. "'Their beloved prince was in peril, their country was in danger. "'They had but one duty to perform, "'which was with the least possible delay to return to their rescue.' Since there were no other means of obtaining a passage, they, profiting by their experience on the Pegasus, shipped before the master's common seamen, and making the long journey by the Cape of Good Hope, reached Shanghai in safety. The next thing was to get to Japan, an enterprise even more difficult than the journey from Europe to Asia they shrewdly suspected that the british minister at pekin would gladly accept their good offices in furthering the settlement of the difficulties their hot-headed prince had created they appealed personally and directly to sir rutherford Alcock, told him of their conviction of the utter uselessness of the prince of chosu's kicking against the pricks and of their urgent desire to come face to face with him and report the result of their observations in england The British minister, touched by this mixture of simplicity and shrewdness, ordered Admiral Keppel, then in command of the British fleet in the Chinese seas, to land them as near the camp of the prince their master as was practicable. As soon as they got ashore, they hastened to the prince, earnestly besought him to desist from a hopeless conflict, and in part succeeded in stopping him in his mad career but they were more truly representatives of Japanese opinion when eight months earlier they had left the country in search of means to trample on the foreigner. The prince himself was helpless to stem the course events were taking. He had raised a spectre which he could not lay at will. As for the new and unexpected emissaries of peace, it fared hardly with them. Ito had to hide himself from popular indignation, falling into the hands of the angered samurai was slashed hacked and left for dead by the roadside he had just sufficient strength to crawl to his mother's house where he was nursed back to life and carefully hidden but to this day he bears on his face a memento of the terrible night within four years of these events the inevitable end had come The power of the tycoon had crumbled to pieces. The Mikado was restored to actual authority. The feudal system which had brought about this result in its turn miraculously melted away. And after a transformation scene, the like of which has never before been enacted in the history of the world, Japan found itself under something approaching to constitutional government. In the growth of popular liberty, and concomitantly of national prosperity which has since invigorated Japan, the hapless sailor apprentices have borne the principal share. The lessons they learned in Gower Street in 1864 have not faded from their memory. Abandoning all notions of conquering England, they determined as far as possible to imitate her. They have introduced into Japan railways, telegraphs, a postal service, and a thorough system of education the dream of their early youth has been realized to the extent that japan now has a navy of first-class ships though their guns are not loaded to keep off foreigners on the contrary foreigners are welcomed throughout japan and foreign trade flourishes at half a dozen open ports the policy of the present government of which mr ito and mr inouye are the founders and the sustaining forces is deliberately and persistently directed towards extending this sound and liberal movement they are prepared to throw the whole of the country open to foreign trade just as england is opened but they ask that the work should be accomplished on something like the same conditions as it is rendered possible in this country They demand that foreigners trading within the empire shall be subject to its laws, whilst they are willing to have those laws administered in the case of foreigners under conditions as to the personnel of the tribunes which shall secure the certainty of justice. As a preliminary to this state of things, there has lately been promulgated in Japan an adaptation of the Code napoleon, which has drawn forth encomiums from several eminent European jurists. In addition, Japan demands some slight revision of the import duties, which, it is contended, do not, as at present imposed by treaty, leave to the government of the country the bare means of subsistence, compelling them to make up deficiencies by increased charges upon their own people. Those treaties were exacted from an ignorant and irresolute tycoon standing between the devil and the deep sea having english french and dutch ships thundering at the gates of kobe and around him the chiefs of the clans protesting by their swords that the foreigners should gain no foothold in japan no impartial mind can affirm that treaties so made and at that date are applicable to the japan of to-day and it is to be hoped alike in the interests of japan and of the commerce of the western world that the negotiations pending in 1884 may result in a just and equitable revision end of chapter 2